I could just say have some empathy for the child and how they must feel. Because I think as adults, maybe we forget a how it is to be a little kid. But for those of us who maybe always spoke multiple languages at home since a young age, I happen to have learned my second and third language as an adult. So I know how hard it is. It's in like recent memory for me, how hard it is to be immersed in language and learn it. It does take a long time. And when it's you, you do appreciate when people are patient and empathetic and go easy and repeat themselves and start speaking simple sentences and don't laugh at you. So as parents, you know, even more of a reason to be that for your child. Do you ever wonder if you're raising bilingual or trilingual children correctly? Who should be speaking to the kids in what language? What happens when your child shows no interest in languages? In this special case study episode, a multicultural and multilingual mom, Danielle Siribazzi, shares her early multilingual journey all the way from West Africa. Join us as we dive into her family's language situation as she navigates English, French, and Wolof with her three children. Listen as she shares her current struggles and I offer recommendations that she can begin to apply in bilingual parenting. Plus, we learn a bit about life in West Africa, the foods that are similar to Latino foods, and what inspired her to move there from Chicago. Yo, a Latina mom, bilingual parenting educator, and now author, Jenny Perez, invite you as we take a closer look. Así que no te lo pierdas. Welcome to another episode of the Latina Mom Legacy Podcast. I am your host, Jenny Perez. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much for tuning in from whatever corner of the world you are tuning in from. Today, we're doing a very special case study with Danielle Sirivasi, a Jewish-Italian mom raising trilingual kids in West Africa. This case study gives you an idea of how I work with parents who are navigating bilingual or multilingual parenting. But before we get to that episode, I want to spend a couple of minutes and bring you up to speed. I hope you had a nice Easter. We had a lovely Easter. Victoria and I went to church and then we went to breakfast as a family. And then we went out here. We're in Jersey. So we went to uh, the Cherry Blossom Festival, which was really nice. And it was a beautiful day. So it was nice to get out, especially since I was feeling much better after my colonoscopy that I had on Friday. So the whole prep Thursday was, oh my goodness, let me tell you, what a mess. (laughs) It was just awful, awful, awful. Like they give you all these things to drink and cleanse you out and it was just like awful. The actual procedure on Friday was fine and it was really quick. They were very nice. I love my doctor. Everything was super fast and, and easy. Though I will say that Friday, I just, I was really out of it because they took some biopsies and that sort of kind of made me, made me feel like really yucky just inside. I was just very achy. And if you've ever had COVID, I, I kind of uh, compare it to how your body feels when you have COVID, like the aches, like your whole body aches. That's kind of how I felt Friday and Saturday. I was just like super achy. And then yesterday, as I mentioned, it was feeling much better. So we were able to go out. I didn't do a whole lot for Easter. So usually uh, we do like dying of the eggs and we go, I, I like to do like an Easter egg hunt for Victoria or invite some of her friends. And it was just, you know, every year is different. And sometimes you just, you don't have the energy or you just don't have it in you to do certain things. And that's okay. You have to, as moms, we have to give ourselves that break and not feel guilty. I mean, I know Victoria was a little bit sad, but you know, it's also our jobs to help them see that, hey, we're human too. And you know, when we're not feeling our best, that it's okay to take a break and that we don't always have to do all these things every year. So th- definitely this year was was a little bit different, but it was still special nonetheless. 
I want to say thank you so much for making my new book, my debut book. Nobody told me this about raising a bilingual child, making it number one. Uh, when it came out in both categories that uh, we put the book in, thank you so much. That means so much. Last week, I shared with you our virtual book launch where I go into the details of how this book came together. So if you haven't listened to that, you can take a quick listen. But thank you so much for all of your continued support. My goal is to get this book out there and to get it in the hands of moms and dads that want to raise bilingual children that perhaps think it's too hard and I really want to make it accessible. You know, this isn't an easy journey, but it's one that you can definitely give to your child and it's a beautiful, beautiful gift that you can give. So I hope that with this book, uh, I can inspire you and motivate you to, to do that. So with that being said, on today's show, I have Danielle Siribazzi. She is a multicultural, multilingual mom from West Africa. Let's learn about her bilingual parenting journey and a little bit about West African culture. I would love to hear your thoughts on these case studies. And if you would like to be a participant in a case study, hit me up. Hit me up on the gram at milegasi, M-I-L-E-G-A-S-I. And just send me a text and say, hey, I would like to be a participant in one of your case studies and be on the show. Why not? The idea is to help other moms through their struggles, through their stories, and to continue to grow this community, this beautiful community of uh, bilingual moms and dads all over the world. Espero que te guste. Un beso bien grande. And I'll talk to you soon. Ciao, ciao. On today's show, I have a very special treat. I have a multicultural mom, Danielle Sidibadzi. She is going to share with us her journey raising bilingual, potentially multilingual children. And we're going to learn a lot about what that looks like all the way from Africa. Danielle, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. It's going to be a very interesting discussion. It's a very interesting concept, and I'm happy to share well, I love to share different moms' stories and their journey raising bilingual or multilingual children because mm-hmm. every journey is different. Every family's make is different. Mm-hmm. And what I want my listeners to understand is that there isn't a cookie cutter approach when it comes to bilingual or multilingual parenting. And ultimately, you have to do what works for you and your family. So sharing the stories of other moms and other parents and their experience is a way for different listeners to resonate. Maybe you can share something that resonates with somebody and they can be like, oh, wow, that's me. That's us. And Mm -hmm. learn from that. So that's the goal is for us to learn and grow and to continue on this journey. So Danielle, tell us a little bit about your background. So I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois, full-blooded American. Boring American, but not so boring because our, our neighborhood was actually very multilingual and multicultural. So it kind of makes sense. The suburbs of Chicago were very diverse. Yes. Where in Chicago did you live? Because I went to school in Chicago. Well, I'm a Western suburb. My mom was originally from, I think, a southern, a south suburb of Chicago. So yeah, but I'm from Carroll Stream. They're all the suburbs are really interesting, really fun, very, you know, normal American life, I would say, right? The American dream. You've got, you've got a school, you've got centered around family life. At the time when I grew up, lots of job opportunities, lots of fun things to do around town, you know, lots of parks, like I said, fairs. So just like a really fun American childhood, I would say. Mm-hmm. My dad is second generation Italian. So he is from New Jersey, from a kind of blue collar home. His mom didn't work. His family, his cousins were all within blocks of each other in mm-hmm. the city. And their grandma and grandma 
grandparents all spoke Italian at home. So, but by the time it got to him, he's second generation. So even his mom, my grandma didn't really speak Italian fluently, but she would sort of spice up her English with Italian words. <laughs> so I think that piece mm-hmm. of non-native speaker words in Italian floating around my head that I don't know are actually correct. But it sort of died out, I think, with her, the Italian language. So we were very much a monolingual, one language at home. My mom is like fourth generation Jewish American from multiple um, European countries. But yeah, considered Jewish, Jewish culture, Jewish religion, heritage. But of course, although I did have one grandparent that spoke Yiddish, so he shared some words with me as well, mm-hmm. but not fluently or anything like that. So, so the languages kind of died out, the Yiddish and the, and the Italian just sort of died out. But I will say again that when I was growing up in our neighborhood, we had an Indian family. Yeah, an Indian family to, on one side, a Pakistani family on the other, a Chinese couple across the street, an American family with two adopted kids, an Irish-American, a English family that was originally from Ghana. Oh, and then my uh, our best friends were from, she was American from Wisconsin and her husband was from Kenya. So yes, an English-speaking African country, but we were very, very diverse and all the kids played together. We all ran around outside and this was in the 90s, so we didn't have like, we had video games, but we didn't have like smartphones. So we were always outside, running around, getting dirty, going inside of people's houses in and out, you know, having Kenyan food over there, having spicy Indian food over there, running home. So yeah, we were the Italian Jewish family. So it was like very interesting growing up. And then I would say like, you know, advanced classes in school. And incidentally, there was just like 80% of my fellow students were South Asian. So all my friends were Indian, Pakistani, a couple East Asian, but mostly we would like lovingly refer to them as brown and Desi or Desi friends. And we would all, I knew all the Hollywood, act, Bollywood actors and all the food. And we'd just like go in. Yeah. So it was really like South Asian culture, but these were were all first generation kids. Mm-hmm. So that was my first exposure to multilingual homes was through those friends because when I would go to their house, like I would see their parents would speak very like rudimentary English with me, but then they would be speaking in you know Gujarati or Punjabi to their daughter, you know, to my friends, and then they would respond to them in English. So I'd only always be hearing half the conversation. That was just totally normal for me. Then I went to school at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I studied international relations with a minor in French. And then that led me to Senegal in 2009 when I was a senior in undergrad. And so I did an internship in microfinance out here in a small town with a host family. And so that was my first exposure to French. I mean, they speak French, but they... 90% 90% of like personal relationships are done in Wola. So the language mm-hmm. administration, I would assume, because I remember Ecuador was a little bit similar, but I would imagine Latin America is similar in that a lot of people may speak Spanish at home, but it's definitely the language of like administration and politics because of the old influence, you know, the colonial influence, but there's also the local language that's there and that's been there. And that's what people speak. So you don't really speak French here at home. People speak Wola or whatever the other ethnic languages are at home. And for clarity purposes, yeah. Wolof, is it like French? Is it like a variation mm-hmm. of French or is it totally different? Absolutely, completely different. It's it's an, old, it's an African language. It's got nothing at all to do with any European language whatsoever. Well, it's got a lot of influence from various other African languages and also some Arabic because there was a Islamic missionary movement that came down in the 1600s from Lebanon. And so that's why the country is 98% Muslim, but they've got their own 
spin on it, their own kind of brand or flavor of Islam that's kind of mixed with tradition, traditional, you know, practices. And, you know, they'll use their drums and chant and mm-hmm. they translate the Quran verses into Walla, which mm. you wouldn't see that anywhere else. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But, um, but anyway, so I had to come here the first time. And every time I came back to visit every year, every two years was like just the code switching is what I had to go through because I had to basically split my mind and leave the American Danielle at home. Okay. Nobody spoke English. So I had to not only speak, learn and practice my French, their way of speaking French, but also voila. So I had to teach myself two more languages at the same time in order to like express myself and understand what's going on. And at the same time, culturally absorbing all the culture and all the gestures, facial expressions and, you know, expectations around those languages. So I had to create different identities that go with language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had to become trilingual. And so coming back to the U.S. with that was a big culture shock. That's why I kept going back every year, every two years. It was just I felt like I left pieces of myself behind and I had to maintain it. In 2017, I moved back here and wanted to start a business and see where it would lead me. And if it didn't work out, I'd go home. So I came out and I started a relocation service company. So I help companies and NGOs and embassies and all the, we have oil and gas here now that's ramping up. And so offshore. So there's lots and lots of foreigners coming into Senegal, like never before, orient them, the companies and the employees and their families kind of get settled and figure out what life is like and how to stay compliant, how to get a house, how to navigate life out here. Now I've been 15 years that I've been here. And then while I was here a year later, I met my husband, we had our son, and then we have twins. How old are your children? So we have three children. So Musa is was born in May 2019. So he's what, three and a half. And then we have twins who were born in December 2021. So they're, they're just a year old and their names are Soli, S-O-L-Y, and, and Isaac. We call him Isaac. And how are you navigating languages with them? Yeah, so for our first son, for Musa, he spoke really late, even to the point where my mom was getting worried, although she's always worried, like, I mean, he won't walk on time. I mean, it's just, I'm very easygoing with it, but it was later than I thought. Like, I thought he would at least start saying something coherent by, like, two, two and a half, and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. He was, only me and his dad could understand sort of what he would have words in Wolof that he would mispronounce and, like, just one-word sentences, maybe two words, and that was it. So Mm -hmm. let me ask you, so with your son, what language approach did you use? Like, was it one parent, one language where only one of you spoke Wolof, the other one spoke French or English, or was it both of you speaking everything at once? What was the approach with him? Unknowingly was trying to implement the one parent, one language. So I only, and I still only speak to him in English. His dad tries to only, he only speaks to him in Wolof. But then the problem is, is when we're all together, me and his dad speak a mix. Yeah, we sort of, sometimes it's French, sometimes it's all Wolof. It depends on what we're talking about, which is... <laughs> sure. No, I get it. I'll speak in, in Wolof. <laughs> but if it's like, it's weird. So he was completely confused, I'm sure. He had nothing really to hold on to. And it all changed when I went to the U.S. with him to Chicago with my son for a month from October. And I came back in early December. So it was, it was about five weeks. And it just, his English just exploded. 
you know, he's hearing one language from everyone all the time. It's suddenly right. clicked. And mm-hmm. he's just left and right. He's all of a sudden speaking in past, present, past continuous. You know, he's like all the grammars, vocab. He's feeling more confident. And I felt guilty because I was like, you know, wow, maybe I should have <laughs> done this a long time ago. Like maybe he should have only been one language at home. He was feeling, you could feel him being frustrated before that. Like he couldn't speak. And I was imagining like, knows at his age mentally he's ready to talk he's probably got thoughts that he just can't put words to so he was just right. really aggressive um, a lot of the time and then once the English came he all that just went away he was so excited so enthusiastic so happy yeah it was like a relief I'm sure for him and now that we've been back he's forgotten all of his well up so he's now doing this thing with his dad where he speaks to his dad in English and his dad tries to like speak to him in wall up and he just ignores him because he's just like oh I don't know what you're saying and I'll just go talk to mom. And so that's really hurtful for him and for me. And I have to keep pushing him, like, go talk to your dad, go talk to your dad. Or I'll be like, you know, do you know what that means? That means this, like, and I'll try to translate it in case he doesn't understand what's being said to him. Does your husband speak English? No. So one thing that you can do is because since you're sort of the middle person, since you speak Mm -hmm. both, is one thing that was taught to me by my daughter's uh, Spanish teacher is to paraphrase. And what that means is basically whatever language you're speaking to your child in and whatever language you want them to acquire or start to pick up, whatever you say, you repeat in the second language. So if you're speaking to your son in English and he understands you, whatever conversation that is, then just follow that phrase in Wolof. Okay. Can you go bring me the socks? Okay. And then you would say Mm -hmm. in Wolof, can you go bring me the socks? Now, the point is not for him to necessarily speak back to you and not to force him to speak back to you, but just to train his ear to listen to the language so that when he hears his dad say, can you go pick up your sock? He gets it because why? Because mom told him in English and in Wolof, that's how it can click. And then you can sort of transition that. With my daughter, like she is trilingual or we're trying to raise her in, in three languages. She's very good in English and Spanish. Bulgarian is the one that's a little bit lagging. My husband doesn't speak to her in Bulgarian as much as we'd like. She goes to a Bulgarian school once a week, but But that is the idea that when he does speak to her, then he follows what he's saying in Bulgarian. So again, part of it is consistency because he's not consistent. (laughs) So part of it is also training ourselves because at the beginning, it's going to be weird. Oh, for everything that I say in English, now I have to say it in Wolof. Like that's Mm -hmm. like going to be a pain in the butt. My brain works anyway because I've got to do that constantly anyway. So it would actually be, it would be a little tedious, but it won't be difficult. I will tell you at the beginning, it's training yourself more than anything, just to train yourself to catch yourself. But the more you do it and the more consistent you are, he's going to start to pick up Wolof a lot easier. And not only that, he's going to embrace Wolof easier because right now you have to understand that you have a stronger connection with him because he can communicate with you. He's not frustrated with you, right? Like, so you have that stronger bond right now because he's feeling like a little bit rejected from his dad because he can't communicate, right? And it goes both ways. It's like his dad's feeling rejected from him because it's like you chose mom's language and you're not trying to communicate with me. 100%. And dad will come around 
<laughs> because in general, men are uh, apologies if you're male listening, but I'm just you know going to point this out. <laughs> in general, mm-hmm. men are a little bit more impatient when it comes yes. to language learning or bilingual mm-hmm. parenting or multilingual parenting because mm-hmm. of the expectation that okay, children need time to acquire to learn a language, and every child is different. That time varies depending on the child. So you may mm-hmm. have children that pick it up really quick. There are children that can mm-hmm. just by listening, pick it up and speak no problem. And then there are other children that while they listen, it doesn't click and they may take years to develop a way to communicate. So the goal really with the child right now is to help him understand that he can communicate his needs, at least to one parent, that he is being understood, that he is being listened to, while at the same time working on introducing, I would say, the third language, right? Or the, I should say the second language uh, for him to be able to have that communication with his dad. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I think, and there was also a rift um, with my husband's family. There's something that happened last year, but before that, he's got a very, very typical son of these family with the house. It's got four floors and like 30 people in there, like three generations and like 16 kids running around. And was so used to spend the day there on the weekends, just like let him hang out there all day so he could get the experience and get the wall up. And he started at the time he was like two at that point. He was really coming along. But yeah, it's been a year now. And now I'm a little nervous to drop him off there because he's not a little baby. He's three and a half, four years old. And he is going to feel like, where am I? No one can understand me. I don't understand anyone. So Mm -hmm. I'm hesitant to do that because he might just hate going there and just be like, you know, not understand anybody and just be a backfire. So I'm, I'm not sure how to ease him back into that. So again, you're the point of connection with him. So Mm -hmm. you're the bonding person. So at least for the first few times, what I would recommend is for you to go with him so that he still gets that exposure to Mm -hmm. the language. Because in order for children to learn a language, you need two things, right? You need the exposure and the need to communicate. Mm -hmm. So he's going to have both there. He's going to have the exposure and the need to use. He's going to need to be able to communicate in that language, right? But because Mm -hmm. he doesn't necessarily know how to communicate right now, then you're going to be sort of the one bridging that gap so that if he needs to communicate with his cousins or with his family, with extended family, you can sort of serve as a translator, not for everything, because again, you want him to have that exposure. And if he's playing, if he's doing something that is fun, that is a reason for him to want to learn the language because fun equals Wolof, right? When I speak Wolof, when people around me are speaking Wolof, I'm having fun. Now, if you take him to that setting and he's bored and he's just there with adults, yeah, he's just there with adults, and not being a kid, not being around other kids, he's not going to really have a connection to the language. He's not going to want to learn it. He has to find joy in it, right? So exposing him to other kids, getting him to play in the language. And I promise you, if you go there just a few times, just so it serves as sort of a comfort, like, okay, I'm not going to abandon you. If you need to communicate, I'm here, right? But he's having fun slowly he's going Mm -hmm. to detach and he's going to be able to be like, okay, mom is there, but okay, I'll I'll be right back. He's going to go play Mm -hmm. because again, has something fun to do. And then if he needs to, okay, mom, I need to communicate this, right? But then the more he's exposed to that, and because he is going to be surrounded by the community language so much, he will pick it up. So what I will also tell you is 
Don't impose your fears on your child. Give him a little bit more credit because we tend to like things that we struggled with. We tend to like put that on them. But remember, he's his own little guy. He's his own person. I mean, obviously, you know, his strengths and weaknesses most because your mom, right? Mm -hmm. But let him be his own person and develop and let him express to you what he needs. And that's like tuning into his needs. What I like to help parents with is bring fun into the language, but look at what your child naturally likes to do. They like to run if they're very active, then incorporate Mm -hmm. the language into that physical activity. Maybe if he likes to play outside. So maybe that time that you play outside with him is just going to be in Wolof. Tuning into the things that he naturally likes. My daughter was always like, loved to read, right? She liked anything with books and with words and writing. So our big thing is reading time. Like that's our bond. That's our thing. Like go Mm -hmm. to the library, the bookstore, we read. Because I know that's something that she naturally loves. I happen to like it too. You know, Mm -hmm. obviously you want to ideally like the activity as well because, you know, you're going to put the effort as well, right? Yeah, you want to be sincerely also having fun. (laughs) Absolutely. Those are some recommendations that I can give you that I think would help him in terms of opening up a little bit more to the language. Because right now he's just frustrated because he can't really communicate. But what we have to do is ease that frustration and give him a little bit more uh, positive reinforcement and assurance that, okay, mom is here. I got you. And the language is going to come. Hi, I'm El Cherise, host of the Speaking Tongues podcast, and Jani and I recently spoke about Colombian Spanish language and culture. Please enjoy this clip of Jani talking to us about the parts of Colombian culture that she loves. You can find the full conversation, episode 125, Speaking Colombian Spanish, by subscribing to the Speaking Tongues podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What are some things about uh, Colombian culture, culture in Colombia, that you love? like things that instill pride, things that you gravitate toward? Well, I realize not being around uh, the Colombian people, my people, my heritage, how fun they are Mm. and how friendly they are and how funny they are and how immediately as soon as I got in the taxi, I was like, trying to keep up with the Spanish because every other word was a saying. Like we have a lot of sayings about oh, everything. I love and, that. <laughs> and I I was like, there's a saying that they say, Hay mucho taco. like I haven't heard this saying in such a long time. And it means there's a lot of traffic. Not has nothing to do with taco. The, the taco is just pr- spelled the same way, pronounced the same way, but it means there's a lot of traffic. Oh, wow. And I said, I said to my daughter, I said, oh, my God, I haven't heard this saying in forever. And she said, I said, taco. And you know what she said? She said to me, she said, yeah, mom, it makes sense. Hay mucho tráfico. New episodes of Speaking Tongues are available every Monday, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to like and share episodes with other language lovers like ourselves. Aviento. Yeah. Now, what would you think? Because I've considered, like, because English here is the is strangely the minority language. So if I don't speak to him constantly in English, he's not going to have it because French is what they 
school. There's there is a lot, there are a lot more English schools now. Like lots of Americans have come here and like started schools. In theory, could just continue the schooling exclusively in English. And but the, the country operates in French. I mean, if you don't speak French or read French, you're in trouble because you're not gonna understand anything outside of school. The well-off thing I think of it that seems like there's a path forward. French, yeah, I don't know. Like again, I'm not French, so I don't really see any value in it aside from having him somewhere where you can at least learn formal French so you can understand administration, but that's kind of later. But I'm just like, I feel something's telling me that I should still keep the English around, you know, with him exclusively so he doesn't lose it. Because the other half is like, well, maybe I should make more of an effort when his dad's around to only speak in Wolof so that at least my husband feels included. And then, then we'll get that exposure to Wolof as well at home when dad's around. Because we also, we also have a, a nanny, um, a nanny and a, and a live-in maid. So we're like seven people in the house and I speak well up with the, with the maid and the nanny and like the four of us do. So it, he is hearing it. So I'm just like, what is my role in all of this? Should I, I like that you said I should translate. I should speak in English and then well up. But I was like, do people do that? Is that another approach where like dad's around then the common language is, is well up? Because what happens now is I tend to speak in English and my husband's around and then he just feels left out. Right. And you don't want that. I mean, every family situation is different and every child and even spouse is different. So there is no right or wrong way or better or worse way because it really works with your family's dynamic and what you feel comfortable with. Because I'll give you an example. So when my daughter was born, I knew I wanted to raise her bilingually, that she was going to speak English and Spanish. And I knew that I, at least for my part, I wanted her to learn her heritage language of Bulgarian from my husband. When she was born, because I'm most comfortable in English, even though I was born in Colombia, even though my native language is Spanish, even though I speak Spanish with my extended family, I am in a mostly English speaking environment, right? But I knew that I wanted her to get the Spanish. So I spoke to her a lot in Spanish, but I also spoke to her in English because that's what I felt comfortable with, right? And because I wasn't 100% comfortable speaking Spanish all the time, I spoke to her, let's say 70% in Spanish, 30% in English. So she heard a lot of both languages from me. For my husband, she mostly just received English because she was a baby and there was no back and forth with the baby. He mostly spoke to her in English because that's what he feels most comfortable. As she started to grow and I would speak to her in Spanish and she would start to respond in Spanish and English sometimes, the common language between me and my husband was English. So she would feel left out. So her natural inclination was to speak English. Now, because I didn't want her to feel left out or I didn't want my husband to feel left out, what ended up happening is there was a lot of translation going on, especially for the things that she didn't understand. Just because for me, I felt like I don't like like when I'm in a conversation with other people and not knowing what is being said. Right. Yeah. So I didn't want her to feel left out. And I didn't want my husband to feel left out. So what nice. happened was that we all picked up sort of languages of each other. So my husband picked up a lot more Spanish. I picked up mm-hmm. a lot more Bulgarian. And that's how our family dynamic worked. Now, I've interviewed moms where the mom only speaks in Spanish. The father only speaks in English. When they communicate, they communicate in English. But the child, because they've been conditioned to only address the mom in Spanish, will only speak to the mom in Spanish and will speak to the dad in English. And there isn't that problem. And the child is okay. The child doesn't feel left out. So what I would say is, Look at your family dynamic. You don't want to resent each other for speaking or not speaking Mm -hmm. the language, okay? 
So look at the family dynamic. And unfortunately, what ends up happening many times is that the mom sort of takes a little bit more of the burden just because she usually is the one that wants to push the language, like to pass down that heritage language. It kind of falls a little bit more on her. It's not going to be forever. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be forever because as your son and as the twins begin to grow, they're going to pick up the language. They're going to be exposed to the environment. How old is your eldest son now? Three and a half? Three and a half. And the babies are how old? They just turned one. Okay. For him, the next three years are crucial for his Mm -hmm. language because zero to six, zero to seven is what they call like the golden years when they're most receptive to language learning. So you want to take advantage of the next two and a half years. And the more you speak to him in all of the languages, obviously have sort of a plan. So you can also say, okay, only during these cases or these scenarios, I'm going to speak Wolof to my child. Like maybe it's when you're outside. Every time we're outside, I'm just going to speak Wolof too. Or maybe it's every time we sit and read at night, I'm going to read to him for 30 minutes, but I'm going to do it every night, but it's only going to happen in Wolof. Yeah, it's associated with people, like this certain type of people the child knows, like, I'm going to speak well off, but this certain type of person I know I'll have to speak English. So for me, it was like about the person, but I like that, that it's, you could also do it by situation. Mm -hmm. That's called context, time, and space. So it's either under certain contexts during certain periods of time or during certain spaces. So like my daughter knows that when she's with my mom, when we go down to Florida, solo se habla español, we just speak Spanish because that's what my mom mostly speaks. So she knows immediately when she goes down to Florida, her brain switches. She has to speak Spanish. Yeah, maybe that would be good. Like whenever dad's around, we speak in Walla. When it's bedtime and we're with mom and reading books, they're all in English. So we'll have mom time in English or something like that. And then at school, he gets both English and French and Wolof with his family. You know, I'll think about it, but that's very interesting. I think that sounds like an interesting solution. Because for me, I was like, I don't know if it would be possible and practical for me to mix languages, all three of them all the time. Uh-huh. I can try to translate. I think, but maybe it would even be better if it's contact and contextual. Like, dad's around, okay, let's make him feel included and let's all speak only in Wolof. You know what I mean? And that would force him to include dad and not just <laughs> ignore him. And what I will say to you is whatever approach you do decide, first of all, test it out. See Mm -hmm. what sort of is resonating with your son. And as the babies grow up, they'll just naturally sort of pick up what the family's doing. So they'll just kind Mm -hmm. of be not thrown in, but kind of (laughs) thrown in for lack of a better word. But see what he responds to and just keep this in mind. No matter what the approach that you choose Make sure that it's a positive reinforcement for him. If you see that he's frustrated, you can back off a little bit because the the most important thing is for you to build, continue to build that bond that you have with him so that he doesn't Mm -hmm. have frustration or resentment towards the language, because then Mm -hmm. he's going to sort of build up a little bit more of a wall and be, you know, sort of a little bit more resistance. So that's why the more play, the more fun, the more positive the environment the more open they are. And even if you think that they're not picking it up, they are picking it up because like you said, when he went to the United States and he was surrounded, then all of a sudden, and with my daughter, it was like, I was like, is she learning? Is she really picking it up? And then around Spanish speakers, she would start yapping in Spanish and I'd be like, oh, okay. So she does understand. She gets it. (laughs) But because she knew that I spoke English, 
she was more comfortable expressing herself to me in English. But I continue, you know, and then the last part is just no matter what, just be consistent and committed. Just commit to it that it's not going to be a straight path, that it's going to be sort of like a curvy road. But ultimately, you are giving them an amazing gift that their brains are really going to benefit from it. And it's only going to help them in school. It's only going to help them land better jobs. It's only going to help them focus better, especially in like build connections with people. So keep at it and your husband will come around. (laughs) Poor guy. So let me ask you this. What does your support network look like there in terms of your extended family, your friends, who's speaking what to your children? What does that look like? Well, so we have my husband's family, but his parents are not around. So no grandparents. Really, he's only got my husband's younger sister. His older brother is uh, struggles with some mental health issues, so he doesn't really ever come over. You don't hardly see him. But his younger sister speaks French, speaks Wala, makes a point to probably speak Wala with him and with us. Like I said, she lives in the extended family house, so there's lots of cousins and aunts and uncles, friends mm-hmm. and kids running around. I have friends, some of these friends. I have international friends. English is our common language. I do have a couple French friends. So when they come over, they speak French. They have children whose age. So they are more speaking French at home. That's their mm-hmm. language preference. So that's becoming a little harder for them to communicate because when they were little at, the, at daycare, like they would all play together. But now right. they're a little older. They'll try to come over and play with Musa and Musa's trying to speak to them in English. And they're like, what? And they're trying to speak to him in French and it's just like not working anymore. But yeah, so yeah, English, French, Wolof, it's just like a mix of everything. And the French, do they teach French in school over there? Yeah, so it's kind of what I was started to say earlier. So because it is the language of administration, because it's an ex-colony, you have the, the norm, like the regular public schools and most of the private schools are in French. Nobody teaches in Wolof at all. Like when kids go to school traditionally, you walk in the school and you speak French. Uh, but then as time is going on and the, and obviously the country's realizing how important English is, and you've got this influx of American expats and, you know, English speaking expats here is a lot of people who've opened schools. So there's like mm-hmm. American bilingual school. There's the one who's going to vision, which is Canadian based. They're like bilingual, but mostly English to a couple American schools. So they get the American curriculum, mm-hmm. which is cool. And it's like, if you go that route, then you have to finish there because basically are on to go to college in the U.S., which isn't bad. It's just very expensive. And I don't know that like, yeah, there's just a lot to consider with schooling here. There's also the International Baccalaureate IV. Mm-hmm. And that's an English that opens them up to basically anywhere in the world to go to college. And you kind of have to think about it right from the beginning here because all the good schools are private. So you have to yeah. choose very carefully if it's the French system, the Senegalese bilingual system, American English school, the International Bac. So it's right now he's in a bilingual school, but I, every time I go, they're speaking English. So I really have never heard them speaking in French and nothing on their wall is in French. So I'm not sure how much French they can anymore. <laughs> he used to get it every day. Like the daycare he was at until over the summer last year was French lady. Everyone spoke French. Literally no one ever spoke English. So he was picking up French left and right, singing French yeah. songs, like doing complete sentences in French. And that's pretty much over now. He never speaks in French. 
That was going to be my recommendation is if you've focused on English and Wolof at home and in school, they're doing like French as another language, then he could potentially pick up French through that medium. Because that's sort of what we're doing with our daughter, where English and Spanish and she's getting Bulgarian because nobody here speaks Bulgarian. It's a very specific language. Then she's going to a Bulgarian school on the weekends to have that exposure that she is getting more exposure than she's getting here at home because I don't speak Bulgarian and my husband doesn't speak enough Bulgarian or at least to her. So that she has that additionally outside the home. So, I mean, you can also, I mean, as your child gets older, you can enroll him in like French language school or uh, French classes or have somebody come tutor him in French, because if that is a language that will be useful for him in the environment, he will need it. He'll need to be able to function in society there with French and Wolof. So just having that sort of in the back of your mind that he will need French at some point, or at least some exposure just to be able to get by. If you decide that you're going to stay there for the long haul, he'll get it. But I would say the sooner he gets that exposure, the better just to take advantage of the early years and how they process the language at this point, because now they're just sponges and Mm -hmm. it's easier earlier on. Uh, Not that he can't pick it up later on, but it's like you have this like processing Mm -hmm. machine right now. (laughs) Uh, I know, I know. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot like right now we're thinking about switching my daughter from school. And, you know, again, because of the quality of education and we're like, because she's only in elementary school, but we're already thinking middle school, high school. So I totally get that, you know, you have to project that far ahead. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Danielle, any tips for any mom or dad listening that want to raise a bilingual or potentially multilingual child? Any words of wisdom for them? Well, I would say that I'm very early in my journey as a multilingual mom, maybe another two years when the twins are older and I've got three kids babbling away in multiple languages. But the only thing I can say so far is that I could just say to have some empathy for the child and how they must feel. Because I think as adults, maybe we forget a, how it is to be a little kid. But for those of us who maybe always spoke multiple languages at home since a young age, I happen to have learned my second and third language as an adult. So I know how hard it is. It's in like recent memory for me, how hard it is to be immersed in language and learn it. It does take a long time. And when it's you, you do appreciate when people are patient and empathetic and go easy and repeat themselves and start speaking simple sentences and, you know, don't laugh at you. So as parents, you know, even more of a reason to be that for your child because we're already in a source of emotional support and confidence, you know, and source of personal identity being formed. And so a lot of that, so much of that is attached to language, our identity. So I don't know, I feel like just that's what I've tried to be as a mom is whatever language it is, I've tried to be empathetic and put myself in his shoes. And I just assumed that a lot of his frustration came from language. And whereas some other people were like, oh, he's getting so bad. Moose is just behaving so badly. We don't know why, where that's coming from. Like, why all of a sudden is he acting out? And and I was always like, just give him time. I think, you know, mm-hmm. as soon as he gets the language down, he's, he's going to be better because it's got to be so frustrating for him at this age. Developmentally, there's so much he wants to say and can't. So I think, yeah, just trying to be empathetic to how hard it is, and especially with three 
like it's hard enough for my kids that for mm-hmm. one language all three it's just it's so hard and so yeah just being empathetic and trying to be just be there for them <laughs> during the journey Danielle, thank you so much. We're going to do a quick, fast round of questions. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. It is a show tradition that we ask our guests the same round of questions. So Danielle, this is your fast round of questions. What would you say is your biggest struggle as a mom? Biggest struggle as a mom, I think, is just, yeah, just trying to prioritize like what I want to teach them long term. And, you know, not waiting to like trying to figure out a way to integrate it right now, like in terms of values and language and religion and hard work, like trying to inculcate uh, values into my kids, even though they're little. But it's like trying to think about those things and how to integrate that into our daily life. Those are things I think about. Like I have a heavy responsibility to make sure that we're not just, you know, just living, going through the motions every day, but trying to uh, yeah show them, guide them through life. Like it's a big responsibility. So. That's the hardest part. Indeed, indeed. What would you say is the best piece of advice that you've gotten from a mom or your mom? My mom, definitely not so much. (laughs) Not so much advice. I think just staying true to your values, staying true to who you are, you know, not letting other people influence you. I think just being confident in who you are as a parent. That's what I've gotten from my friends and from mentors and things like that. Because everybody has an opinion about parenting. Like when you have a child, (laughs) everybody and their mother wants to tell you everything, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, what traditional family dish would you like to pass down to your children and why? Yeah, so good question. So I live in a country where we have you know, very defined dishes that we eat on a regular basis. But I think the hardest thing to keep that I want to keep is like traditional Jewish food. So mm-hmm. we have Italian restaurants here too. I think that's like pretty ubiquitous. You can find Italian food just about even here. But Jewish food is so special and it's so connected to the Jewish experience in the U.S. and our holidays. And we have very interesting foods that aren't very well known. You know, that's something I would like to try to keep uh, as a tradition. You mentioned that there were some traditional foods that you eat there. What are some things that you typically eat there? West African food in general tends to be very like rice-based, different ways to prepare the rice. So we have like it's like spicy red rice or like white rice that has garlic and lemon in it. Lots of flavor. It and, sounds like Hispanic so, food. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because whenever I have my African friends, Percentively Spencer are always, I want to like help them discover other cuisines. And they're just so like, they're like very adverse to trying new food. They're like, mm, thanks, but no thanks. But I, every time I've introduced them to like Latin food or Asian food, Indian food, you know, like a bed of rice. Some sort of sweet sauce with like meat, chicken, or fish, vegetables. They love it. So, so yeah, it's really good though. It's very flavorful. It's not for the faint of heart. People that don't like spice might would might not like it. They might. My mom, we have to tone down the spice to next to nothing for her to like it. But it's really it's it's good. How funny! What traditional remedy do you swear by? I don't know how quirky it is, but I just know what works. And the funny thing is like what is so normal for Americans to do, like chicken soup when you're sick, hot tea, uh, Vicks and Vapo rub, ingested. All those things are like so foreign here. And sometimes it's the complete opposite. Like, you know how when you're congested, we're like, oh, give them a warm bath or take a hot shower or something like that. Mm-hmm. Here it's the opposite of, oh, that's even worse for you. I always have to be like, no, this is what I know. This is what we're doing. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> so a lot of yeah, when the kids are sick, I I know there's certain things I do. Like I, they like to wrap that, like dress them so in so many layers. The kids when they sleep, they have to be wearing long sleeves, long pants, socks. And I'm just like, take off the sweatshirt. Like, let the kid be like, free. And like, a little. It's so funny because in Africa, you think like it's hot enough. Like, the kids should be, you know, in a, just a t shirt and a diaper. But no, it's uh, they're like, no, no, God forbid they catch any amount of colds. It also means comes from Chicago, it's like a different. So it's funny. So I have to really hold on to my heritage and make sure it's not lost. You know, making chicken soup the way I want. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very. I ask them. I send a recipe to the woman who helps cook for us, and she doesn't do it the way I like it. So sometimes there's certain recipes I have to make myself, like certain comfort food, like lasagna. I have to do it myself. <laughs> can you get um, the noodles out there? <laughs> yeah, you can buy lasagna noodles. Yeah. The first achievement she tried to make lasagna it was like very spicy. It was like very heavy in oil. It was almost like fried lasagna. It's like, good, but it's not. It's not. I'm laughing because I'm seeing a lot of similarities between the Senegalese people and the Latino people because I'm like, yeah, fried. Yep. Sounds about right. Lots of rice. Yep. Sounds about right. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty funny how, how common that is outside the U.S., like the lifestyle. Like even when I live here, it's like my Indian friends and their family. It's like so similar, like just the way people are, and the way they act. And yeah, just like just so many things are similar compared to the U.S. It's just such an anomaly. It's so different from everywhere else. Now, culturally, like how are the Senegalese people? Like, are they very open? Are they very reserved? Are they like huggers? Are they, you know, how every culture has like their thing, like, you know, so yeah. one more reserved. This is what's proper. This isn't proper. Or they'll look at you like you have two heads if you do this. Like, I'm curious, like, <laughs> how is it out there? It's a very interesting dichotomy. On the one hand, they're very, some of the people are very well known for Taranga, which is our word for hospitality. So they won't, people, their main thing is making foreigners feel like at home and making you feel at ease. And like, they're so nice and such big smiles and just like giving you everything and just like making amazing meals for you. And just the most important thing is that you, you're happy and they're very confrontational. They've never had like a civil war or anything like that. Everyone, most important thing here is getting along and like preserving relationships. So a lot of the foreigners, especially Americans, they tend to misinterpret that as anything goes and like no one's judging me. Mm-hmm. When in reality, they are. There, mm-hmm. there, there are values here. There are very like strict codes of conduct. It's very conservative, very traditional, even though we're talking about most Islam but it has a lot in common with traditional Catholic or Christian values. You know, they have a lot in common with the, with traditional Jews because, you know, gender roles is a thing. There, There's no question about that. You cannot talk to an English person about certain social issues that are in the U.S. That is like unheard of as an issue here. We just don't, we don't talk about that. It doesn't exist. It makes for a very simple life, very clear life. Um, everyone's eating the same thing at the same time during the day. Like breakfast is always, always the same. <laughs> All the kids eat the same thing for breakfast. They will same thing for lunch. Same time for dinner. Everyone's going to work at the same time. Everyone's hoping to get married someday and have kids. Nobody's questioning these things. So if you kind of go against that, no one will outright argue with you. At least sometimes they will depend on how close you are. But deep down, there are social, you know, there is a social structure. And there are expectations about how people should live and how you should act and how to respect people, how to, to greet people. You know, you don't rush through greetings. For example, you take the time to acknowledge the person and ask about their family. And have you eaten today? Are you full? <laughs> like food is a big thing. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, which is not, you know, very common throughout the world. Those things have been sort of lost, I think, in Western mm-hmm. culture. But so it's a very different lifestyle. It's very, like, you would imagine that maybe the U.S. used to be like that, like, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And that's how we live. Have horse-drawn carriages right next to, like, a BMW on the road. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very interesting. But no, they're not hoggers. They're not hoggers. No. Like, they'll shake hands. Yeah, there's like a little bit of a body space. Like we all, we're all putting on a happy, nice face all the time. Right. Like I'm, I'm welcoming you with all my arms yes. from a distance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's always people kind of like, and there's always among Senegalese people, like a little bit, like not involving foreigners, like amongst themselves, there's always kind of a little element of distrust and a little bit of like, they're kind of sizing each other up. What can I get? Can I'm I- telling you, they sound very similar to, <laughs> to some Latino cultures. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. yep, yep. Sound- <laughs> that sounds like my tia's neighborhood. Yep, that sounds like my family. Yep, <laughs> 100%. <laughs> How funny. I love it. I love it. But you're right. It's funny that I guess when we're in the U.S., everything is like moves at such a fast pace mm-hmm. that when you go to these different countries, everything slows down so significantly mm-hmm. that to your point, people do take the time to greet, to get yeah. to want to know you too. Like a lunch date is not 10 minutes. It's a two hour no. ordeal. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's when somebody invites you to their house, it's not a 30 minute visit. It's like, no. you're going to stay over for four hours and, you know, let's go through all the meals and the little snacks. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, actually, I enjoy that very much just because when I do get that in smaller doses, it sort of brings me down to a more simpler life, to a more a present life that sometimes we disregard or so it is nice. Danielle, what do you want your legacy to be? My legacy, I was kind of trying to mention that I touched on that a little earlier, but I already am from like a multicultural, I would say background because my mom worked very hard to preserve her Jewish side, my dad Italian side. So I've always sort of seen myself as a split person between the two identities. I've already had two identities, right? But now I'm infusing that, not, you know, not obviously the language part, but the cultural aspect with my husband's family, which is, uh, you know, a different culture, a different religion, a different country, and then all a different language into mine. So it's like three in one. And so at a certain point, it's like, I have to choose what aspects of each, because you can't, they're not going to have the same experience that I will. They're not going to be going to town. First of all, we don't have any Jewish temples here. So like, we're not going to go into synagogue ever. So like how to what extent am I going to be able to give them some of that experience that I've had, you know, without it going out? Like I was saying, my dad didn't speak Italian, that's gone. The Yiddish is gone. So it's like there's some things that if you if you don't take the time to conscientiously pass it along, it gets lost very quickly. One generation, two generations, it's gone. So yeah, there's a couple of recipes, I guess, like the like seven fish soup, the Italian soup for Christmas. I would love my mom, luckily, was able to just like that and Italian cookie. There's like an Italian cookie my grandma used to make. And my mom got that from my, her mother-in-law, which was great that she did that because now she can pass that to me at some point. But yeah, like what, what are the things that we choose about ourselves to carry on? It's just a lot for me because it's a lot of pieces, it's a lot of different backgrounds. So how do you, yeah, how do I pass it along without diluting it? I think the most important thing is the religion, though. I was brought up to be very religious, and that's why I'm like easily adapt- adapting here. And how I was able to have a lot of South Asian friends and immigrant friends because traditional, you know, religious values are very important to most immigrants, and that's how I was raised as well. 
even though it was two different religions. So for me, my parents always had the message that God is the same for everyone. We just have different ways of worshiping and honoring him. So that's where the difference was. And I think even with my husband, who's Muslim, we still all have the same God. We just have different traditions. So, you know, so like, for example, last night, this is a good example. I decided all of a sudden to teach my son about like praying before bed. And so it was really wholesome and it was so nice to hear. It. I was like, okay, Musa, we're going to say, God, thank you for, and then he started going to say, God, thanks for equal, which means school, or God, thanks for my friends, or thanks for yum yum, or thank you for whatever. And it was just like so beautiful. And it's just like, this can overcome, this aspect can overcome all the differences from the three different religions because the foundation of it all is the same. So I think that's, uh, at least from that aspect, that was really nice for me. And I think, you know, it'll be nice for all the both sides of the family too. Danielle, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Danielle, for sharing your multicultural and multilingual family's journey with us. Here are some of the episode's takeaways. One, as Danielle taught us, anyone can learn a new language and build a connection to that language and culture at any age. Two, Sometimes as parents raising bilingual or multilingual children, you may have many questions. The key is to be flexible with yourself and your family to minimize frustrations and feel heard regardless of the language. Three, children may experience regression or delays in verbal communication, especially when surrounded by multiple languages. This doesn't necessarily mean the child is confused or not learning the languages. They are simply processing and it may take some time. Be patient with them and yourself. Four, finding ways to make the language fun for the child and ways to build a connection and bond will help them engage more with the language. Finally, as Danielle reminded us, being empathetic with our children as they learn a new language is crucial in order to create a positive connection and experience to the language. Put yourself in their shoes and allow them to communicate and express themselves in the best way they know how, regardless of the language they are using. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Latina Mom Legacy Podcast. Como siempre, mil gracias. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at the Latina Mom Legacy or at Mi Legacy. You can also sign up for La Lista and stay up to date with everything that's going on by simply clicking on the show notes in your podcast platform or visit the latinamomlegacy.com and click on today's episode. You'll also find links to today's recommendations and show special. Finally, want to support this podcast? The best way to show your support is to write a review. Reviews are a way the podcast can get visibility and power other moms like you to connect, create, and carry on our Latinx heritage. Un beso, un abrazo, y hasta la próxima. Ciao, ciao. What do you want your legacy to be?